I wanted to draw first your attention to that Zephaniah passage. Have anybody ever uh, heard a sermon from Zephaniah? I don't know that I have ever preached from Zephaniah. Strange little book, comes right at the very end of the, uh, the Old Testament, not the very last book, but near the end. Zephaniah is writing during the, the reign of Josiah. That, remember, he's the, the eight-year-old that becomes king in, in the southern kingdom, Judea, and brings about all sorts of reforms. I love the passage. It's, it's such a salvific, it's such a, it's such a vision of salvation, of what the good life, of what God's come to bring us, what our hope would be. I mean, did you, did you hear those words that Justin read in that great bass voice that he has? Rejoice, rejoice, Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cleared away your enemies. He's in your midst. You shall have no fear of evil. Fear not. Don't let your hands grow weak. The Lord is in your midst. He is the mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And quiet you with his love. Remember being a little kid and you're upset and, and your mom or your grandmother or your dad or whoever it was could just quiet you with their love? He will gather those who mourn for festival. They will no longer suffer reproof. He will deal with your oppressors. He will save the lame and gather the outcast. He will change their shame into praise and renowned on the earth. I will gather you together and I will make renowned and, and I will make you, to re, be, you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. And then he says at the end, he will restore all of our fortunes. I would commend to you that this is a, this is a, a, a picture of what Salvation is what the Lord comes to offer to each person. It is the invitation to, to receive all of these descriptions and more. What you may not know about Zephaniah is that this little book of Zephaniah, for the most part, is a book of judgment and a call to severe repentance. And it's only in these last few verses here that we get to the good part, the, the end of repentance which is this vision of God's salvation coming to his people. And I would say to you that this is the promise that God makes to all people, all that would come to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. And so Zephaniah declares that those who come to God in repentance, in a change of mind and heart, who decide to go a different way, who stop pursuing their own path, can receive this picture of salvation. The third Sunday of Advent is Rose Sunday, which is why Father James, who apparently has extra income, is able to buy a pink stole that he only wears one time a year. It's to remind us that even in this, in this season of preparation and of somewhat lament of our sins, sitting quietly in a dark room, as Michael told us, with a candle to remind us that we need to, we need to remove the obstacles, as Mother Susan said last week, that even in the midst of this purple season, that the pink begins to come out. The joy becomes to come out. And this morning, I would want to say to you that repentance is an, 
a grace. Repentance is a reason to rejoice. If God calls you to change directions, if you come to the point to realize that the way you're trying to run your life or the lives of people around you is simply not working, and you decide that you want to follow after God, that is a reason to rejoice. That is a joy because God has called you to that. It is his grace in your life. We can't will ourselves to repent, to turn away, to change our minds. But the Lord can do this gracious work with us and we can cooperate with him. Think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. We're in the gospel of Luke chapter 15. We're told about this prodigal son who wakes up in a pigsty and realizes that the slaves in his father's house live better than he's living. And what does he do? He gets up and he goes home as fast as he can. Repentance is going home. And it's a reason to rejoice. It's a reason to be filled with joy. Which is why we're told that the father in the prodigal son story runs to the son and rejoices with him. That he who is dead has come back to life. Now it's often... Hard to understand because we, we hear God's wrath and his judgment and we are, we are confronted with it and it doesn't make us feel very good. It doesn't make us feel warm inside. Jesus, I don't feel affirmed as you tell me to be judged and, to, and that your wrath is, is awaiting those who will not respond to you. But think of it if you are a parent in terms of your own children. When they're little and they do something that puts their life at risk, or at least their health at risk, how angry do you become? Because you want to keep them safe. And later on, as your children grow up, and inevitably they do grow up, at least physically, if not mentally, and eventually they go out on their own and they're in the world, and at times they do things that just frustrate you, and you can see the ways they're going, and you understand that it is going to bring nothing but heartache and pain in their lives and yet you're powerless but how angry do you become not in the sense that you you want to smite them you might want to hit them but you don't want to smite them you just want to get their attention and say don't go that way and that is exactly what the Lord's wrath is about it's it's his demonstration of his great love for us and his desire to see us not fall into the abyss but return to him. Well, Mother Susan got us started last week on John the Baptist, but John the Baptist actually gets two Sundays in the season of Advent. He is the precursor. He is Jesus' hype man, if you will, although he has sort of a unique style of hyping up Jesus by calling people to repent, to be water baptized, even if they're Jewish, and to get ready to, to be prepared to do those fruits, to bear fruits, to show actions that demonstrate repentance, that you've turned away. It's easy to say, I'm sorry for what I did. I, I, I feel terrible about it. It's a whole nother thing to then do something. Remember little Zacchaeus, wee man, right? Jesus sees him up in the tree and he, Jesus says, I'm going to eat at your house tonight, which in the Old Testament kind of a Jewish context would have been like to eat in somebody's house would have, would have been an honor. It would have been like the president or 
uh, you know, some important person to come and eat at your house, you know, right? You, you would, you'd put a plaque out and it would say, you know, you know, this president ate it in my house kind of a thing. I know that some of you probably would, de- would depend on which president I understand there. So <laughs> living in 2021, it's so hard. Whoever you would be excited to put a plaque in front of your house out. It's that sort of a invitation to be in, in close proximity. But what happens in Zacchaeus' life? As Jesus comes to eat with him, Zacchaeus says, I've cheated people. And you know what? I'm gonna, anybody that I've cheated, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Whatever I took, I'm going to give them four times back, which meant Zacchaeus had lots of money. But he was willing to give back as a fruit of his repentance that he wanted to change his life. Jesus uh, is demonstrating mercy towards Zacchaeus. That's repentance. That's the grace we were talking about before. But then Zacchaeus responds by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. John gets right to it. He, He says to these very religious Jewish people, he says, don't think that I'm just talking about those pagans out there, those those idol worshipers, those, I'm talking to you. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't say that you're Abraham's children, therefore you're off the hook. Once saved, always saved. I, I, I committed my life to Christ a long time ago. I was baptized. Don't, it's, it's, it's are you pursuing me? Are you pursuing a life that recognizes, Jesus says, are you pursuing a life that, that represents fruit that bears witness to your desire to repent, turn away from those things. See, there there are two ways to go our own way. There's the religious way and there's the non-religious way. The religious way is to sort of, you know, take Christianity and to kind of boil it down to a few things that you think you can accomplish and to feel really good about yourself and to ignore the ways that you cheat and steal and lie and pretend to be something that you're not, live in your thoughts about things that if people knew, boy, wow, what they would think of me. It's the religious way to go your own way. The, the non-religious way is to just say, to do it, just to go do it and say those things and put it out there and put it on social media and, and not give a care who sees it. But both are going our way. Both are deceptive to ourselves. Both do not bear fruit of repentance. So we are given three examples of people that are in the crowd that hear John's warnings and his, his hype and his, his call to repentance. And, 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 Jesus, and, and John, I keep, sorry, I'm sorry, Jesus and John, I get them mixed up sometimes. I mean, the hype man and, and the man, you know, it just gets confusing there. But, but John has these three people that come to him. And the first is the people just come up and say, you know, what should we do? How practically should we live? And John says, if you have two tunics, give to the one who has none. Very simple. Care for the impoverished. Care for the poor among you. Don't simply hold on to all that you have, but see that you're meant to share with those who have less. Now, we've learned a lot at Servants over the last 15 years about caring for the poor. 
And there's a way to care for the poor that is helpful, that builds them up and that empowers them to, to live flourishing lives. And there's a way to, to give to the poor that keeps them psychologically poor and, and in bondage. And we're learning how to love and help people in a healthy way. But the thing that's most important is that helping those who are poor requires a relationship. It's super easy to write a check, at least for some of us, and then to walk away. But to really help those who are impoverished is to come alongside them and to be in relationship with them and to see that they have things to offer to you as well as you have to offer them. But there has to be this charity, this, this spirit of charity about ourselves that we understand that we're called to, to give away some of what we've been given. Because of your generosity, this congregation was able to bless the pastors of Alachua County. We were able to help foster children otherwise wouldn't have gifts this Christmas. Some of you will give monies to scholarship Kenyan students to go to university or to go to secondary school or to pursue master's degrees in fields that they otherwise would not be able to pursue and improve themselves economically in the very poorest area of Kenya. Because of your generosity, we were able to put someone in a car that needed a car desperately and to do the repairs that would need to make that car workable. We are called to be people who are charitable. Secondly comes up a tax collector, much like Zacchaeus, the tax collector that I talked about a minute ago. And the tax collector says, or tax collectors say, what should we do? And practically John responds, don't take more than your share. When you became a tax collector in ancient Israel, you, you, it was more like you were buying into a franchise. You had the right to collect taxes for Rome, and then there was a certain amount that Rome required, and then anything above that amount, you were entitled to keep. And so you could charge whatever you want, and you had Roman soldiers to back you up so that the people were forced to pay it. And that's the reason why tax collectors were both rich and also why they were so despised among the Jewish people. John is saying, be honest. You deserve something for collecting taxes for Rome, but don't, don't extort from the people. Don't, don't take extra. Don't, don't take all that you can get. And, and isn't that oftentimes the, the mentality? It's like, get all that you can? I, I got to tell you, I, I know white elephant gifts are really fun to do, right? But there's something about it that kind of bothers me. Because there's this, there's something about the fact that you know you see somebody else's white elephant gift, and 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 you just take it. You know, I don't know. There's something about it. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I mean, okay, I'm done with that little little rant. That's that's a side note. So, um, but but there's this there's this mentality in our culture which says get all that you can, right? Jack the price up as much as you can. That's why the, during the, the hurricanes, what, you know, people will, will inflate the price of gasoline to $10 a gallon because they know they can get people to pay for it. And, but, but in our own lives, we do that, don't we? Aren't we tempted to do that, to try to take more than our share, to get all that we can, take advantage of situations? John is calling us to be honest in our dealings. I think there has to be, you know, I was talking to this with somebody last week. There has to be some, at some point that, that, that our profit 
we're entitled to a profit, but, but not a profit to the point that we damage those that we're receiving it from. Okay, I'm getting into economics. Time to move on. The third group that comes up to John is the soldiers. And the soldiers ask, what should we do? All of these are very practical ways that they're being, how do I respond? How do I repent? How do I change my heart and mind and begin to go in God's direction? And here it's about extortion and abuse of power. And I love this passage, and I have to tell you, my friend Esau McCauley points out that, that this passage here is the counterbalance to Romans 13. In Romans 13, we're told to obey the authorities over us, right? We're to, we're to submit the authorities of the governments over us. But this passage here, John is reminding us that those who have power and authority over us are not to abuse that power. Not to take advantage of the fact that, that we have to submit to their authority and to not take, uh, to take undue, uh, to use that power for, for, for ungodly resources. If we balance the two, submitting to authority and authorities that don't extort or use their own power and authority for their own selfish gains, then we live in a just society. And in all three of these things, we can see in our, in our world areas where these things are not followed, but, but we're also called to bring them home into our own lives. We are called to respond. Repentance looks like charity. Repentance looks like honesty, especially to those who are vulnerable. Repentance looks like compassion, are those we have power over. And I'm not just thinking about soldiers and police officers here. We all, most of us have some sort of authority or power. I clearly do as a spiritual leader in a community. That's why we do shine the light trainings yesterday and remind ourselves that we're not to take advantage. We're not to manipulate our places of authority for our own ends. Well, I said already John's the, the hype man for Jesus. He's most unique style of, of hyping up Jesus and preparing the crowds to receive him. Some begin to wonder, as I've confused in this sermon a little bit, John and Jesus, and begin to think perhaps that, Jesus, that John is the, is the Messiah, that he's in fact not just the forerunner, but that he's in fact coming to, to be the, the Messiah. And, and John shuts him down quickly, right? He says very clearly, I baptize you with water, but when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is, again, a source of our joy. Because it's the reminder that Jesus comes and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And it is he who begins to do the work within us. This is not about trying harder. This is about submitting to the power and authority of God the Holy Spirit, and allowing him to bring about a purification in our lives. It's a turning away from the things that would, that would destroy us and leave us under God's wrath and instead experiencing the renewed life, the transformed life that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I, I just suggest that you take a peek over at that Philippians 4 passage 
and hear what Paul has to say. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, make your requests made known to God. We begin by getting before God in silence and in prayer, by bringing our needs before him, and then stopping to listen to how he would respond and direct us. I would suggest that the reason why we have trouble being charitable or honest or compassionate is because we have anxiety about whether or not we will have enough, whether we'll be taken care of, or whether we'll end up in a horrible place. And it causes us to pull back. But the antidote is to take to, in prayer those needs of our lives and to allow Christ to take that anxiety upon us and to transform us. In conclusion, I want to I share a story from my, um, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books, um, The Great Divorce. Um, I've mentioned it before. It's such a picture of what the Lord wants us to understand about repentance. We think of people of the University of Florida walking around with big signs with no love in their hearts, right, that are just calling you to repent and telling you that hell is real and that you're going to burn. And that is not at all what God wants us to understand about repentance. In Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is a, uh, it's a fictional book about what it would be like to to visit both hell and heaven. And the main characteristic of between hell and heaven is that, is that hell is very misty and ghost-like and immaterial and heaven is increasingly solid and thick and sharp and bright and vibrant. And so through various chapters, Lewis takes us all the way through this thing, but it was one particular story that I just, I come to over and over again. I read it when I was probably Bella's age, and it just has stuck with me, um, which is about 17, I think, right? Yeah. And, and ever since then, I've been, I've been captivated by this story. It's, it's, it's about a, a guy that, that walks up, and he, he's talking to an angel, and the, the man has a little red lizard that lives on his shoulder. And the little red lizard whispers in his ear in a way that only the man can hear. I read it with Justin Smith when he was 17 as well. And, um, and this little red lizard is just whispering in his ear. And we learn in the context that, that this little red lizard represents, it represents a, the, a sin of lust in this guy's life. And it's whispering to him. And the angel comes to the man and says, do you want me to take care of that lizard? And this is what transpires. Be careful, it said. This is the lizard speaking, by the way. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. In other words, if you repent, then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live You'd only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. It's convinced him that he's actually real and he's, he's very ghost-like at the moment. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'd be so good. I'll be so good. 
I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, said the angel. You're right. It would be better, but supposing it did, you're right, says the man. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I, says the angel, blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over with. Do it if you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. The next moment the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisting it while it bit and writhed and then flung it, broken-backed on the turf. Ow! That's done for me, grasped the ghost, reeling back. For a moment, this is the person's observing what's going on, for a moment, it was nothing distinct. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but glowing Growing ever more solid, the upper arm and the shoulder of the man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands and the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention were not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of the man. An immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. Its tail, still flickering, became the tail of hair and flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I saw back, rubbing my eyes, what stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whining and stamping its, its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dwindled. The story ends by the man climbing upon the stallion and riding towards heaven. Friends, this little fictional story is meant to capture exactly what repentance is to be in our lives. Can it be painful to turn away from the things that we've gained comfort from, the things we've relied upon, the ways we've tried to control our lives? Yes, it can be painful, but if we let God kill it, He will transform those things that bound us and kept us ghost-like to transform us into the people that God has created us to be. Oh, that we would be people bold enough to let the angel kill the lizard. Amen.